Amen. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're locked and loaded and ready to get at it this morning. We're going to get into some things that I hope encourage you and maybe clear up some fuzziness in some understanding and thinking. I'm going to do a two-part series this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning, and I'm calling this, this two-part teaching. Uh, it's not, not a very a glamorous title, but I think it's very definitive, and I think it's going to uh, bring some clarity in some areas. I'm calling this simply Paul, our theologian. Paul, our theologian. Now, you know, theology, theology, theo, God, ology, study of. So when we talk about theology, we're talking about a study of God. And a theologian is one that uh, teaches or helps us to understand in our study of God and what God is really like. Paul is the guy, he is our go-to guy of the new covenant post-resurrection. He's the guy that we go to to study and to learn all about the Father. And I want to bring some clarity on this because, man, there is so... There is so much spiritually going on worldwide. And if I have a finger on the pulse of culture, not only in um, our city, our nation, but around the world, if I have a finger on the pulse of what's taking place, and I'm very active with people, not just in one nation, but with, from many nations, I see, man, there is, a, there is a hunger right now for authenticity, for something that's real. We're, we're, look, we're, we've tired, we're tired of the smoke screens. We're tired of uh, seeing through a veil. We're tired of hearing half-truths. We're looking for something that is authentic. We're looking for the real deal. There's also a, a tremendous pull right now to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is another way of saying sonship. Sonship is a, is a whole dimension, a whole field that I think the spirit of truth is breaking out today. And as soon as I get back, from vacation, you're going to be watching this sometime latter part of June. But when I get back from vacation in July, I want to pick back up on the series that I was doing on embracing our divinity. And I want to, I want to dive headfirst into this whole area of sonship because I see there's, there's a pull right now in the spirit of people to understanding what, what this sonship thing is all about. And I also see, the third thing that I see right now is as people have a deepening love for the Father, we're finally seeing the Father in a true light. We're seeing Him through the lens of Jesus. As we're, as we're seeing the Father correctly, it's creating a different paradigm in how we are looking at traditional things and the way that we've always believed, uh, how we've always viewed things. Uh, this past week, I've been in conversation with any number of people that are in conflict, <laughs> good conflict, but are in conflict, they're, they're sensing some changes going on. And change is, until you learn to change, until you learn to embrace change, change can be very uncomfortable. It can be very unsettling, very upsetting. They, they feel, people are feeling, this is what I'm hearing this week, and in, in, it's kind of been a thread through the people I visited with, they're feeling a joy and a freedom arising within as they're seeing by revelation things that they've never seen before. But at the same time, it's creating a tension with what they've always thought. And it's like, you know, the box that they were confined in, now we've got one end of the box open and things are starting to come out into the light. And when we examine some of those old things under the light, they don't look too good. They don't hold up very well. 
Paul expressed that. Paul ran into that. Paul, Paul said it like this. Evident, evidently, let me phrase it like this. Evidently, there was a Jesus and a gospel that Paul preached, which we're going to look at because he's our theologian. But there was also another Jesus that Paul called and another gospel that was also being presented by other people than Paul that didn't align itself with the gospel and the Jesus that Paul presented. And Paul laid it out in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And can I just say, there's the same thing going on today also. Except now that the whole thing has been reversed. There's been another Jesus that Paul never talked about. <clears throat> there's a gospel that Paul never pre presented that is prevalent today in the evangelical church. <clears throat> Very prevalent. Now what's rising up today in the hearts of people is the gospel that Paul taught and the Jesus that Paul presented. So we have a flip-flop now. So as we present the Jesus that Paul presented, the gospel that Paul presented, it look, it's being looked on as heresy by the well-established evangelical church that for 1,500 years, well, not quite that long, but say for the last five or 600 years for sure, has been teaching a Jesus that Paul didn't teach and a gospel that he never presented. But it is so entrenched that when the authentic comes, we're so used to embracing the counterfeit that the authentic now looks counterfeit. Go figure. Paul said like this. He said, I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by the craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity, from the absolute simplicity that is in Christ. We're coming back to a very simple gospel. Jesus plus nothing. He said, if, for, if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we haven't preached or a different gospel that we, you didn't receive of us, he said, you, you can put up with it if you want to. You can listen to it if you want to, but I would suggest that you don't. The difference between Paul's gospel, and we're going to look at a lot of distinctives. I'm going to draw a lot, of, a lot of comparisons this week and next week. This teaching is kind of like a train. I've got this thing all laid out, one continuous flow. So what, whenever I run out of time, I'm just going to disconnect and we'll bring it back and connect it back up next week. Fair enough? The difference between Paul's gospel and another gospel is the difference between the gospel being a proclamation of good news for all men declaring the absolute finished work of the cross and the gospel being an invitation to do my part, to be accepted by God. Paul calls that another gospel. So what we have now is a comparison between the two. Paul's gospel is a proclamation. Another gospel is an invitation. Now let me ask you, what have you listened to all of your life? Have you listened to an, a, a proclamation? You know what a proclamation is? A proclamation is, by Webster's definition, an official announcement of great importance. A proclamation is saying what is. An invitation, which is another gospel... Webster's defines as a written or verbal request to do something. We're asking you to do something. It's an encouragement to act which makes something more likely to happen. Now, did you, have you, in your upbringing, did you hear the gospel as a proclamation, an official announcement of great importance saying what is? Or did you hear the gospel as an invitation asking you to do something in order that something may happen?
the angels in Luke chapter 2 made a proclamation when they announced the coming of Jesus. They made a simple proclamation. This is good news, goodwill, and it shall be to all men. Jesus proclaimed good news in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free. Those are all proclamations. There's five or six proclamations that Jesus made in Luke 4, 17 and 18. He didn't give an invitation. He made a proclamation. Paul made a proclamation about the riches of our inheritance. And I want to read this one in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. This is, the, this is the kind of proclamation that Paul made. Paul didn't make an invitation, ever. He made proclamations. And here's one in, in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. Listen to this. This is a proclamation. He said, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Paul's making a proclamation. He said, we thank God, man, that he qualified us. We thank God today that he made us uh, able, that he has equipped us, that he has put within us everything we need, that we can tap into the inheritance that have been given to all of the saints, all of the people. He wasn't inviting you, saying, come and receive the inheritance. He wasn't saying, come and, 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 and exercise your faith and, and get the inheritance. He's making a proclamation that he has qualified us already. Do you get it? So if we're going to evangelize, then we got to be confident that the gospel we're hearing and the gospel we're proclaiming is the Jesus and the gospel that Paul proclaimed and that it's not another Jesus and another gospel. So let, we're going to take this apart over this week and next week. I'm saying that what you and I are, we are evangels. We're proclaimers of what is. That's the gospel. That's the Jesus Paul proclaimed. We're not inviters to what potentially might be if you make a choice or decision. That's another Jesus, that's another gospel. We've turned the gospel into an invitation. Jesus and Paul made the gospel a simple proclamation. The world of difference. Remember, a proclamation is an announcement of great importance. It's saying what is. An invitation is a written or verbal request to do something, it's an encouragement to act so that something more is likely to happen. So we've made the gospel an invitation. We've said, look, if you would come and receive Jesus, if you'd come and pray the prayer, then there's a good chance you will be saved, you'll be born again. That's an invitation. Something good may happen. A proclamation is saying, as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall all be made alive. We want you to know right now that you're alive in Christ. Paul made the proclamation in Galatians 1:15 and 16 when he said, when it pleased the Father who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal the Christ that was in me. He didn't receive Jesus. He didn't pray to get Jesus. He didn't call Jesus from out there to come live in his life. He made a sick, simple proclamation, declaration of the acknowledgement, now the awakening to the Christ that had always been in him. Do you see the difference? So how do we recognize Paul's Jesus and Paul's gospel? And how can we spot a mile away another gospel and another Jesus? All right, let me, let me begin to draw some distinctives. Another Jesus never fulfills entirely on his own the mission that he was sent to accomplish. 
Jesus came with an express mission, and that was to fulfill the will of the Father. The will of the Father says this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to a metanoia, a change of mind. All should come to where they see things differently. And I can't wait to get into some things about the mind because the mind is where everything takes place. It's where the battle is. It's where the blindness is. It's where the veil is. The will of the Father sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that the world through the Son would be saved. The right gospel says that Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. That's a proclamation. That's a declaration of what he did. But another, the wrong Jesus, another Jesus and another gospel doesn't fulfill the task. He might fulfill some of it, but there's a part that is undone that we have to give an invitation, which is another gospel, to come partake in. Let me nail this down for you. John chapter 6, there's some strong, strong verses that Jesus talks about himself. In John chapter 6, I want you to underline these verses in the Bible if you haven't already. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Here's, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, and the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will by no means cast them out. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. This is the will of the one who sent me. That of all that he gives me, I should lose nothing but raise him up at the last day. Do you, do you see the picture here? Jesus is giving us a recognition of what his, his, his mission in life is. Last week I talked to you about uh, being the building, the house that God is constructing and that you're a unique building, you're the house. And that he wires you up, he puts within you likes, dislikes, he puts within you abilities that nobody else has so that you can fulfill his purpose. Jesus is saying, look, I, I know what I've, I've been wired to do. I know uh, what the gifting that has been placed within me. I know why it's in there. And he says, everyone that the Father gives me, I don't lose any of them. The question is, how many does the Father give him? Because he said, all that the Father gives me, I don't lose any. I don't lose one. If I lose one, I've missed the will of the Father. Do you honestly think Jesus missed the will of the Father? This is the will of the Father who sent me of all that he gives me. I should lose nothing. I can't lose one. So how many does he give Jesus? How many of us did he give to Christ? Because he can't lose any that he gave. All right, come down to verse 44. Let's answer this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. So everyone that comes to Jesus is drawn by the Father. I thought it was my decision. I thought it was my will. I thought it was me making a wise choice. No, 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 no. The Father drew you. Quit taking credit. We've made the gospel very humanistic, very self-centered, very I am my own God. That's, that's humanism. No, no. The Father drew us. Now, let, let, me, let me read on here. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets... Watch, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, which is how many? It's all. All shall be taught by God. You got it? 
All shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They're drawn to Jesus. They come to him. What did he say in verse 37? All that come to him, he loses nothing. He doesn't lose any. So how many come to him? All that have been taught by the Father. And it says that all will be taught by the Father. Jesus says, all that are taught to the Father comes to me. And all that come to me, I don't lose any. Do you, do you, look, that's pretty doggone airtight. We're not, we're, we're not misquoting this or moving this around. Another Jesus is a Jesus that didn't finish what he said his mission was, nor does he keep all that he said the Father has given him. Another Jesus doesn't recognize that it's the Father that draws. Another Jesus says, you have to come. Another Jesus says, well, I'm going I'm to get a few. I'm going to lose the vast majority. Boy, I sure don't want, I hope I don't lose you. There are other Jesuses being presented today that are totally, absolutely different than the Jesus Paul proclaimed as having finished everything for all of humanity Finishing to the complete nth degree the will and the purpose of the Father. Another Jesus has been presented as an invitation. And in that invitation, we're actually needing to help him finish his mission. Can I tell you, this, let me just tell you boldly and flat out today. Jesus doesn't need your help to finish his mission. He's already finished it. All you can do is recognize what he has finished. Jesus is so, so plain. I don't lose anybody that the Father gives me. Everybody that comes to me, the Father draws me. So how many is that? Well, verse 45 says that God will teach them all. And Jesus, all they've been taught, come to me. It's pretty inclusive, isn't it? You can't, you can't really get outside of that circle. Another Jesus needs your help to finish the mission. Another Jesus only did his part. Another Jesus needs you to keep your end of the deal. Another Jesus doesn't see himself representing the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity in himself and making a covenant that is irrevocable. Another Jesus says, yes, God has made a covenant with you, but you, can, you have to do your end to come into the covenant and you can break that covenant and you can come out of covenant. No, no. Jesus said, I fully represent deity in myself. I take all of humanity into myself. And in myself, we make covenant together. Do you see why the covenant is so strong? He made it within himself, representing both parties of the covenant. It cannot be broken. It's absolutely irrevocable. That is a, that is a wonderful revelation. Wonderful revelation. The Jesus of Paul did everything that Adam did. He undid everything that Adam did. The Jesus of Paul reconciled the entire world to himself. Another Jesus, another gospel only says that you're reconciled if you want to be reconciled. Is that what the Bible says? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 sure doesn't say that. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the wording of this, these two verses I think are extremely important. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that it is that it was God that was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he did that by not imputing any trespasses against us. He wiped it clean. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's through God we, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, you be reconciled to God or you, you recognize what has been done and you agree to it. You accept your acceptance. Now notice, notice the wording in here. He reconciled the world to himself. He did not reconcile himself to the world. You don't reconcile yourself to God. He's already done that. He's already reconciled you to himself. So you need to, be, you need to see yourself rightly as reconciled. That's what verse 20 is saying. Therefore, be reconciled. See yourself rightly. See yourself as reconciled. See yourself in the right light. There is it one verse that says that God reconciled himself to the world. That's what another Jesus and another gospel has fed us. That in Christ, God reconciled himself to the world. Now it's your job to get yourself reconciled to him. That's another gospel and another Jesus, but it's the gospel I heard all my life. That God now has come back and, and, and bridged the gap, but now you must cross over the gap by reconciling yourself to God. You need to pray the prayer. You need to live a, a, a disciplined life. You need to live sinless. You need to live for him every day. You need to dedicate yourself. You need to do all the things that you got to do to make sure that you are reconciled to him. There's no verse that says God reconciled himself to the world. Now you need to reconcile yourself to God. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the whole of humanity, the cosmos, all of it, bringing it back to himself. It's another gospel that taught us that through Christ, God was reconciled to the world. Now you got to reconcile yourself to him. How do you think you're going to do that? Well, you got to pray the magic prayer. You got to do all, all the things that we say you need to do. The reason it never says that God reconciled himself to the world is because he was not ever not reconciled to the world. There was never in God's mind any separation. There was never un, any unreconciling of himself to mankind. You were the ones that were alienated in your head. You were the one that saw yourself apart from him. He never saw himself apart from you. That is a, that is a bag of hogwash that we paid a big price for. It's not true. Jesus came to straighten out all of that thinking. All of, that, all of that terrible mindset that has been so ingrained into us and to redeem our minds back to seeing ourselves in a right light, a right identity. He came to shine the light on what the right identity is. The right identity is you and the Father are one. That's right identity. <clears throat> right identity is that your image and likeness of God. That's right identity. Right identity is Genesis 2.7. He blew into you the breath of life. That breath is eternal life. You've always had eternal life. You've never, not, you've never had temporary life. He blew the breath of life. The only breath that he's got to breathe into you is eternal life. Any Jesus, any Jesus that left a loose end to tie or any Jesus who loses even one person that the Father gave him is another Jesus. And man, we need, to put, we need to retire that other Jesus. He's been talked about and proclaimed so long that we think he's the real deal. No, he's another one. It's not the Jesus Paul proclaimed or revelation of Jesus 
personally that he gave to the Gentiles. So there's going to be like four questions I want to ask you between this week and next week. And I'll probably just get through one this morning. I told you that this message was like one long message. So I just need to disconnect it when my time is up and reconnect it next week. How, how can you tell when you hear something? When you're watching Christian television, God help you if you still do. <laughs> and you hear a teaching or a message on there. Or you go to church Sunday morning and you hear something. How, how can you tell if what you're hearing is the Jesus and the gospel that Paul gave to us or, or if it's another Jesus and another gospel? So I want to give you four questions to ask yourself over the next couple of weeks, this week and next week. Because I want you, I want you out of your head the wrong Jesus and the wrong gospel. And if we're going to live right as, as mature sons, we've got to get a full focus of the right Jesus and the right gospel. All right, so the first question you want to ask yourself is this. Is this message that I'm hearing, is what I'm seeing, is the message Christocentric? Christocentric. What does that mean? Christocentric is just a seminary word for Christ-centered. Is Christ the center of what I am hearing? Is he the centerpiece? Is he the absolute centerpiece of the gospel I'm proclaiming? Or, or does it focus not on him? Does it focus on a doctrine? Is what I'm hearing, does it focus on a methodology? Three easy steps. Does, am I buying into a formula that if I do this, then God will have to do that? Is, is a leader the one that is being exalted? Am I being told that I must submit and follow what a leader says? That the leader is the one that has the truth and I must come and submit and learn from him. Am I being told all of the responsibility that I have to do to come into relationship with the Father? You need to look closely because Paul's gospel, Paul's Jesus, the message that he taught, the message that he put out there was very Christ-centered. It was Jesus plus nothing. And Paul, Paul told us that back in Corinthians, very passionate. He said, I, I, I fear lest you have left the simplicity of the gospel. We have made the gospel extremely difficult, complex. I think you have to be a rocket scientist to tap into the gospel at some churches. And we've, I, I think we've made it that way because then people have to keep coming back to learn how to unwind what should be extremely simple. Simplicity, the gospel, is Jesus did it all. Jesus, Jesus has totally reconciled us. Jesus has made us right. He's our righteousness. Now, can you accept that? Can you accept your acceptance? Even if you don't, it doesn't change the fact that it's already done, that it's already happened. But you're believing it allows you now to enjoy the benefits of it. But whether you enjoy the benefits of it or not, believe it or not, it still is the deal. Now, can you see how Paul's teaching created tremendous conflict from religious people then? And it still does. I don't, what, what I teach, I don't have any people that are pre-believers messaging me, telling me I'm a heretic. That I'm teaching a false gospel. I'm leading people to hell. I don't have any people out there. The only people that ever push back against a simplistic Jesus, a Christocentric message, 
that says, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left for me to do but say thank you. I don't pray a magic prayer. I don't have to make a confession. I don't have to have faith. I don't have to attend. I don't have to give X number percent so that I'm not cursed with a curse. Now, all of that stuff. I'm, the only people that push back are those that hold on to those things. Now, here's where the conflict comes in in many, many places. How do I want to approach this? Paul's teaching always characterized the freedom through grace that we have. Religion that brings conflict today brings conflict because it's not Christ-centered. It's man-centered. It's decisional. It's, uh, uh, it's transactional. The gospel is not decisional, nor is it transactional. It's a proclamation of good news of what is. And when Paul proclaimed what is, it created conflict. Now, for some, the conflict comes because we try, and I want to say this delicately and carefully, and I, I, I'm walking gingerly this morning through this, but I want you to see it. The conflict comes through trying to mix the words of Jesus that he was teaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel or to those that Jesus gave continuity of ministry to the Jews, Peter, James, and John, trying to mix their teaching with the revelation that Jesus gave directly to Paul to deliver to the Gentiles. That's where much of our conflict has come from. It was a conflict in Paul's time by the Judaizers. The Judaizers were trying to take some of what Moses taught and bring it over into what Paul was teaching. And so they said, yeah, it's good that, you, that Jesus did what he did and it's all yours as soon as you're circumcised. Do you see that's another gospel, another Jesus. Jesus never taught anything about circumcision. Paul never taught anything about circumcision. All right? But it's a, it's a blending, it's a mixing. And so <clears throat> today we look at the words of Jesus that were primarily to the Jews. And they're a different breed of cat than Gentiles. The Jews were under law. Gentiles were never under law. Look, I probably should read a couple things that Paul said. And I already quoted this once, but it's worth, it's worth reading again. Because it tells Paul's mission. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. You're, I think you're going to know the scripture by heart pretty quick if you don't already. He said, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. Now, here's why he did all that. He built Paul's house a particular way, built his temple a certain way, put in him certain abilities in life. He said that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission. Everything Paul did was to the Gentiles. And then he gives a great clue. He said, I, he said, I didn't immediately go up and in, in counsel with or get feedback from flesh and blood, which would have been a Jewish in impartation, a Jewish take on what Paul was saying. <clears throat> he said, I didn't mix it that way. Then, then over in the next chapter, in Galatians chapter 2, he kind of gets it down like this. <clears throat> when Peter, when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace had been given to me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Watch. 
that we should go to the Gentiles while they went to the circumcised or to the Jews. The words of Jesus, the words of Peter, James, and John, and the words of Paul don't necessarily conflict. They're not opposed to one another. They're given to, and you have to understand this, they were given to a distinctive audience that was entirely different from one another. <clears throat> Peter, James, and John were speaking to a transitional generation. People that had lived on both sides of the cross. People that lived before Jesus was crucified, Jews, and Jews that were living after Jesus was crucified. They were trying to weave, they were trying to bring into these people an understanding of what Jesus did. Now, in doing that, they taught a very mixed message. You need to understand it when you read Peter, James, and John. You need to understand the audience. They were Jews that were coming out of the law. One of the powers of a mixed message, and I think there is a place for a mixed message. Some grace people might disagree with me. I think there is a place. A mixed message is for people that are transitioning out of the law into grace. Joseph Prince, bless his heart, he's a very mixed teacher. From grace people, he's criticized. From legalistic people, he's criticized. He's too, he's too law-oriented for pure grace people. And he's too gracie for legalistic people. He's a bridge. Andrew Womack is a bridge. I think their ministry, their thrust is to people that are coming out of religion and coming into grace. So you pick up in Joseph Prince and Andrew Womack, you pick up some definite residues of, of the law. And they're also then bringing in grace. But you have to understand who they went to. Look, Jesus... Jesus sometimes taught grace, but, uh, excuse me, Jesus sometimes taught law, but he always lived grace. Are you with me? He always lived grace. Paul, on the other hand, went to the Gentiles and to the Gentiles that were never under the law, that didn't have those mindsets, didn't have those difficulties, didn't have those problems already resident in their life of trying to keep a law. Paul just backed the truck up to the Gentiles, poured them a drink that was straight, put no ice, no water in it, and just said, drink this in its full strength. He gave it to them a hundred proof. Now, when if a mixed message person tries to look at what Paul taught, they try to explain what Paul taught away and still try to integrate some law in. So there comes a time in your life that you have to come out of the mixed message Maybe of a Peter, James, and John. A good example. James taught that without works, faith is dead. Paul taught, on the other hand, faith apart from works. Now, which one is right? If you were to look at that, you'd say they are in conflict. Yet James wrote, first verse of James says, to the 12 tribes, Jews, that are scattered abroad, greeting. Then he goes into his message. So he tells us right up front that he's he's, what he has to say, he's saying to Jews. He's not writing to Gentiles. He's not writing. James is not written to me. Now there's good stuff in James. I can pull wisdom out of James. But I'm not the audience James was written to. Paul is my theologian. Paul is our guy. You got it? 
And as soon as you can cut your teeth on Paul plus nothing else, the quicker you're going to wean off another Jesus and another gospel. Paul gave us the straight scoop. Peter, James, and John did not give us the straight scoop because of the audience they were moving into. They were commissioned to go to the Jews. And this was one of the major concerns of Paul that he expressed time and time again was that people that had embraced the gospel, the pure, hundred proof gospel that he was giving, that he had proclaimed for everybody, <clears throat> that they would begin to drift back into a message that was different than what he had established with them previously, a message of the finished work of the cross is what he had established. But there seems to be this propensity within us to move back to something that we feel we have to do in order to keep it, to retain it. And we just, we saw Paul's passion writing to the Corinthians over there in 2 Corinthians uh, um, chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, where he, he explained to the man, don't get pulled off into a different gospel. Don't get pulled off into a different Jesus. The shift to another gospel and the shift to another Jesus often comes very subtly in our lives. And I, I'm, I'm delivering this message to you at the Digital Cathedral because I don't want you pulled back. I, I don't want you waking up in the morning thinking, man, I haven't prayed for six days. I, my life is not right. I'm, I messed up. Yeah, you need to get back. You need to spend some time with him, but don't feel guilty. If you start to think, that there's something that I didn't do now that is affecting my relationship, you've gone back to another gospel. So here's how the shift happens. And sometimes it's from a good heart because we want people to serve God more. We want, want their life to be as efficient spiritually as possible. So we come into church and here's, here's how it kind of comes down. And this might take three or four generations for this to unwind, but most of us are the recipients of what has been happened in previous generations Sometimes I say, again, from a good heart. Because our previous generations wanted us to serve God diligently. So we would, let me just make something up. Let's say pray an hour. That every good Christian should pray one hour a day. That's a suggestion that the pastor may make in church three generations ago. It would really strengthen your spiritual life if you would pray one hour a day right? And read two chapters of the Bible. Read one hour a day. It'll help you. It'll keep you spiritually attuned. Okay, so that's a suggestion that comes out of the platform, off from the pulpit. Now, when it comes to the next generation, that suggestion becomes a standard. So we raise our children with that standard of you get up in the morning, you pray one hour, and you read two chapters of the Bible. Now, as soon as you do that, then you can start your day. Right? But that's the standard. That's the standard you should keep. Start it as a suggestion. This is a help. This will aid your spiritual life. So you pick it up, then it becomes a standard, right? Now that standard, by the time it comes to the third generation, is a law. And we hear this. Nobody in this house is going to start their day until they pray one hour and read two chapters of the Bible. You're not leaving the house until you do that. So you better get up early before you go to school because that's, that's what we do in the Keithley household. We pray one hour and we read two chapters of the Bible. Now, if you all of a sudden don't do that, if you break that law that was a standard that originally was only a suggestion, <laughs> 
Do you see how this subtly, how this subtly works its way in? Now, if you break that law that granddaddy had set, you feel guilty, you feel bad, you feel condemned, you feel like a failure. You feel like you're not measuring up. So, so the suggestion becomes a standard. The standard becomes a law. And when the law is broken, that's where condemnation and guilt come. So we leave, we leave the simplicity of how we started and we make this thing a very complex lifestyle. And as it becomes a complex lifestyle, our focus now becomes inward on us, on what we do. We lose, we lose our, our focus off of him. We lose our, our focus off the simplicity. We lose our focus off the cross that Jesus finished everything in. We, we, we lose our focus off the life that has already been given to me. And we start somehow begin to think that I have, I've snipped the life that is flowing now because I haven't kept what I think I need to keep in order to keep the flow of life from him to me open. And it comes out in ways, you know, it comes out in very complex ways. Let me tell you one that I, I still have got ingrained in me is this. And I don't think this, but this is the way I pray. I always end up every prayer in Jesus' name. How many of you do that? You pray a prayer, I get done, I say, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen, right? I, it's just integrated into my life. You know Why? Because I was taught somewhere that he doesn't hear a prayer that is not in Jesus' name. Or Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, right? <laughs> so I, I, I've developed this, man. It's, it, you know, you're talking about 60, 70 years of development here. That if I ask something in Jesus' name, he will do it. So I make out my whole laundry list, everything I want him to do. Need blessing, need money, need help. Uh, you know, this problem, that problem needs solution. And I'm asking for all of this. And I'm asking, I, Jesus, you're caught because I'm doing this in your name. Right? You're caught. You're hung up on this, Jesus. You got to do it. Now, that, that's how we make this complex. You don't have to pray in Jesus' name. You don't even have to say Father when you start to prayer. There again, I swear, every prayer, Father, Father. You can just start talking to him. And when you're done, you can stop talking. You don't have to say in Jesus' name. Or, 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 you know, sometimes we think sickness is holding on to us. You know why? Because, because we made a negative confession. We made a negative confession. I, I feel sick. Oh, don't say you feel sick. Those are lying symptoms you got. You mean you're sicker than a dog. You're puking your guts out. Your head's split open. And you're, you're, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm healed. No, you're sick. Faith calls things that are not as though they are. It doesn't call things that are as though they're not. You got it? But this has been ingrained to us. Well, my, my negative confession has created all of this. Well, negative confession doesn't help you any, but when you begin to think that you're sick, you're broke, you're poor, you're destitute, you're on the street, whatever it is, because of the words of your mouth, you know what you start doing? You get, you focus in. This is... Humanism. I'm, I'm the God. I make it happen by praying in Jesus' name. I make it happen by the words of my mouth, right? So you start looking at every, every word. Or how about this one? This one went on for a long time. This was deeply ingrained. What I'm saying, this is how we get off very subtly into another gospel, another Jesus, following things that were never designed by Paul to the Gentiles. We got this idea that the more people we get praying about something, 
the more God is obligated to make it happen. So what do we have in churches? We got a prayer chain, which really end up being gossip lines. Because through the prayer chain, everybody knows everything about everybody because, of course, we want to pray about it. Somehow we think that if we can get a stadium full of people, how many stadiums have filled with people that have bawled and cried and begged God to do something and nothing ever changed? But we got it in our minds because two or three agree is touching anything or if one sends a, a thousand, two can send 10,000. So if we got a thousand people in here, think how many are fleeing, right? This is... This is what Paul was after. The Galatian church was, was stereotyped, prototyped in people that started with the simplicity of the gospel. And next week, I'm going to read Galatians 3, 1 to 3 to you out of the message. But this is how another gospel comes in. We start in grace. We start in Jesus. But then we perfect by our own abilities what has started through pure grace. <clears throat> so we might start with Paul. But what happens is the Judaizers come in and the Judaizers begin to weave things into our life that, that we pull a weight along. There are things placed on us, restrictions placed on us. So we leave the simplicity that is in Christ. And we are, as Paul said, subtly tricked in our minds like Adam and Eve into thinking that we are to ask for something we already have you know, they wanted to become like God, which they already were. So they thought if they could do something, they would be more like God. That's not a bad motivation. It's just a wrong way of doing it. And over generations, we've had amnesia. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that we're image and likeness. We've forgotten we're partakers of divine deity. We have forgotten that we're joint heirs with Jesus. And so we have, through our efforts, tried to reclaim that which we have never lost. But we're simply blind to. Simply blind to. All right, one last scripture, and then I'm, I think I'll, I'll wrap it up for this session. I'll, I'll, I'll attach it right where I stop next Sunday morning. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul said, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of God to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In verse 11, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He said, I didn't receive it from man. I wasn't taught it by man. It came from revelation of Jesus. So here's what I want to leave you today. For everything in Paul's life that he delivered to others, it started and finished in verse 12. He says, What I got, I didn't get from a man. I got from Jesus. And what I got from Jesus, I'm going to give to you. Let me say this in conclusion. When the Holy Spirit reveals who you are, a son of God, in full manifestation, what you possess, your days of trying to get by on your faith, your conduct, or what you can achieve, those days are simply over and they are behind you. And you'll start to respond naturally to what already is. And the joy and the freedom that rises up within you, that is in the people I've been visiting with this week, that's bringing conflict because it's putting them outside the box of where they've always been, that joy and freedom comes because you didn't earn it or get it. Therefore, you can't lose it. That's the power of grace. 
Grace says you can't earn it. Grace says you can't merit it. And the good part is that you can't lose it on your own either. So first of all, the message you hear, is it Christ-centered? Or are there other attachments that have been placed onto it that have made this gospel so complex, so difficult, that you're no longer able to keep it? Any gospel that begins with separation is a lie of religion. Any gospel that is separation oriented will ultimately lead you to a works mentality of what you must do to get back and to get right with God. Don't fall for it. You're fully entrenched in grace and simplicity. Stay where you're at. All right. I think that's a good place to stop. I want to pick it up Wednesday, Wednesday night. And then Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, we'll complete this message on Paul, our theologian. I want you to read Paul this week. Read the book of Galatians or Ephesians and just ponder it, meditate it. Read the book of Colossians. That's, that's short. Actually, all Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are all short books. But they will expose to you the pure gospel, the right Jesus. And I say this in love. Set aside Peter, James, and John for a while. Set aside Peter, James, and John and stick with Paul. Paul is the guy that Jesus said, I've built you, I've wired you, I've sent you, I've commissioned you. Go to the Gentiles, all Gentiles say amen, and you teach them. So what Paul has to say, we need to listen to. Paul is our theologian. God bless. Catch you next time on the Digital Cathedral.